When will it end? Every morning we're greeted with a storm of conflict, tension and strife blaring at us from the TV screen, the radio, social media, the news on our phones. Every day the world is ending somewhere. Here an earthquake, there another senseless act of violence. Today a war across the sea, and tomorrow a war of wills inside the four walls of your own home. How long, O Lord? Rioting in the cities, injustice, corruption. It seems like it's all getting worse and not better. The whole creation is groaning, longing to be restored and made whole again. When you groan as you read the latest headlines about political unrest or sudden bloodshed, you're tapping into something implanted deep in the souls of all living things. You were made to long for peace. It's not supposed to be this way. When you yearn for peace and wholeness, for the shalom of all peoples, you're aching to see the kingdom come on earth. And that's the good news that was announced to the shepherds in Bethlehem and that Jesus himself later told his followers, the kingdom we long for has come and is even now breaking into this world. It's called already, but not yet. On that winter's night in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, the Prince of Peace was born into this world as a herald of the good news, which is for all people, the sign of God's love, the seal of our redemption, the promise of eternal life, an initiation of a new reality, and a fulfillment of the coming kingdom of peace in which every tear shall be wiped away and there will be no more suffering or death. Because of Christ, we can have peace in our hearts, the peace of Christ which surpasses all understanding while we await the final, the universal peace at the consummation of the kingdom when it comes in glory. This Christmas, through Jesus, we have peace. Well, peace is, I believe we all know this, a universal aspiration as we just heard we feel and experience enough conflict in our lives to want it, uh, to aspire to it, to uh, really need it. And to be without peace is not only to be in conflict, but it's also to be living without all that God intends for us, all the blessing that he wants to pour out in our lives. It's both of those things. And as we're seeing in this series, it is also to be walking in darkness. A prophetic promise was made through Isaiah and fulfilled in the nativity that the Messiah, the Savior, would come and that he would be, among other things, the Prince of Peace. That when Jesus shines the light into our lives, and this is again what we've been seeing in this series, when he shines light into our lives, it radiates peace in us and it radiates peace out from us to others. Just what we long for. And if you want that, and I can't imagine there's anyone in this room who doesn't want to experience the peace of God. 
it's found, we saw this in John 1 in the first message, we set this series up, we looked at John 1, we looked at the light coming into the world. And we know that to experience this peace that radiates from Jesus Christ, that he radiates into our lives, we have to receive him and believe in his name. That's John 1.12. Now here's what Isaiah wrote from the Lord in Isaiah 9, and hopefully you have your Bibles open to there already to that passage, Isaiah 9, a 2 through 7. Now this passage, a prophetic word given some 600 years prior to the coming of Christ, looks forward to the coming of the Messiah. In the first few verses, you're going to hear echoes of John 1, contrast between light and darkness. Isaiah records, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, for they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen? Amen. Amen. What a strong word that we receive. And we, again, this passage points to the very thing we've been seeing throughout this series. When the light Jesus radiates peace in me. I'm going to experience certain things. Certain things are going to be true of me. And the first of those, we see it here, is that I'm going to be at peace with God. And this has to be of first importance to all of us. If you go about trying to find peace, if you would admit this morning, yes, I have conflict in my life. Yes, there are certain things in my life that are unsettled. Yes, I would say that I'm not experiencing peace in the way I should. The very first priority is that we would get right with God. And if we go about trying to find peace apart from him, we're going to fail. And in the imagery of this series, we're going to continue to stumble about in the darkness if we try to find peace some other way, aside from through the Savior. To say it as Isaiah 6 does, Jesus himself is the Prince of Peace. I mean, you look at verse 6 and you see this wonderful list of descriptors and I have spent um, other uh, Christmas seasons working through this entire passage verse by verse, but we just want to kind of camp down on that one. Yes, he's wonderful counselor, he's mighty God, he's everlasting father. Those are incredible descriptors. This morning we want to look at him as the prince of peace. And to say that he's the prince of peace is to say that that is at least in part the nature of the kingdom of God, the kingdom that he is a prince of. That peace is a defining characteristic of that place that we belong to, of the people that we're a part of. 
And if, if Jesus is the prince of that, and we want to be citizens of that kingdom, then we must be, as he is the prince of peace, we must be citizens of peace. That this should become a defining characteristic of who we are as the members of the kingdom that he reigns and rules over. And so you have to have it if your claim is to be a citizen of that kingdom. And it starts with eliminating the alienation that exists between you and God, the chasm that is fixed between you and God as a result of your sin. You're estranged from him. You don't have a relationship with him. We want to be at peace with him. We want that alienation to be overcome. So how do we get that? How do, I, how do I make peace between me and God? Well, Jesus gave us a clue. Again, uh, John 14, 27. Again, he speaks of peace here. This is the gospel. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. I'm leaving with you the way that you can be reconciled to God. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I, I give this to you. It's a gift from me. You, um, you certainly don't deserve it. Uh, there's no possible way you can earn it. Jesus is just simply saying that my peace, the gift of salvation, the gospel that we preach, it's just a gift. Just receive it from me. A peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, uh, not as the world gives do I give to you. Whatever way the world tells you to find peace, that is not the way. I don't even need to make a list because there's only one way to get this peace. It's through, it's through Jesus. And so anything other than that, that's on the list. Whatever list we would build. If there's a different way that you're trying to be at peace, that's not the way. Okay? Not the way. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Now, the context here is the upper room discourse. John 14, 15, 16, and 17 are um, words that Jesus spoke to his closest followers on the night in which he was betrayed, the night he was ar arrested, and just prior to his crucifixion. And so he's with his closest followers, and he's downloading to them in those uh, important chapters uh, all that they are going to need to know. And he's going to remind them again that he needs to die for them. In fact, he says in the very next verse that he's going away, going away, which means he's going to die. <clears throat> and his death would give us peace and would reconcile us to God by taking our penalty on himself, he, him dying in our place. And so that's the, that's the how we get it. But I feel like I, I want to clarify it even more because I still feel like even as those who are so attentive to the gospel, we still somehow think we need to do something to get it. And I want us to understand we don't need to do anything to get it. I was thinking about a man who came to faith in Christ, who found the peace that we're talking about, but who couldn't possibly pay for it or do anything to get it. And the best example of that, I believe, is the man who died beside him on the cross. And you may recall from, 
from the story of the crucifixion that there were three who died that day. Uh, Jesus was crucified, and on his right side and on his left side were these two criminals. And um, one of them was particularly angry and vindictive and, and still kind of seething and boiling inside about everything that was happening to him, and, and he wasn't at all receptive to anything Jesus was about. He's just angry that he was dying, and he was dying a miserable death. On the other side of Jesus was this man who was much more tender-hearted about the whole thing. And the two of them are having a crosstalk conversation with each other about what's happening to them. Now, this, this tender-hearted man says to his friend who he's dying with, this fellow criminal, he says to him, We deserve to die. We were criminals. We're getting the just punishment for our crimes. Now, that's very important. You've got to understand, this isn't just a conversation happening and it's not just there for our entertainment purposes. There's something very powerful happening in this moment when this man says, I'm a sinner. I deserve this. He understands his, his standing before God and he's not at peace with where he's at, but he's willing to admit that he knows why. And then he says, this man, speaking of Jesus, indicating to you, this man has done nothing wrong. He's an innocent man, and he doesn't deserve to die. A second so important theological point is being made in this moment when he admits that Jesus is unique, that there's something special about him, that he didn't deserve uh, to be um, placed under the fate that he is now facing. And then... In an act of faith, the man says to Jesus, turns his attention away from his friend, just says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He'd acknowledged who Jesus was. In other words, in that moment, to use the language of John 1.12, he received Jesus and he believed in his name. And he just called out in faith, said, would you remember me, remember me when you get into your kingdom? And Jesus turned to him and said, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, the scriptures don't record what happened next with that man, but I can imagine even as he was still being so racked with pain and tormented by this crucifixion that was happening, that somehow in that moment I can just picture it, and maybe you can too, that he just breathed a sigh of relief. Because in that moment, his sins were forgiven, and he was at peace with his God. Now, please don't think that it's any different for someone who isn't facing imminent death. All of us are just sitting here. Nobody's facing imminent death in the way that that criminal was. But it's no less complicated for anybody in this room to be at peace with God. It's simply a matter of saying, I'm a sinner. I deserve to die for my sins. I acknowledge who Jesus is. He is unique among all. He is perfect in every way. And he died for me. And Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Would you make me one of your sons and daughters? It's no less complicated. For anyone here in this room. And so that's, that's how we get it. Let's understand that. It's the work of Christ. And what do we get? Both the Hebrew and the Greek words for peace that we find in the scriptures, in the Old Testament Hebrew, in the New Testament Greek, in the Old Testament, you know this word, shalom, common greeting among Jew Jewish people even today. And a, a rene um, is the Greek word 
Both carry the dual ideas of not only the absence of conflict, of turmoil, of dissension, of strife. Oh, we often think of peace in those ways. It means I don't have those things. I'm at peace. But it's more than that. It's the absence of those things and it's the presence of blessing and abundance in my life. When I have both of those happening, that's when I'm really at peace. So to have this peace is to be complete and sound and whole. It speaks to our over, uh, overall well-being. Like the joy we talked about last week, this peace transcends all circumstances. And so what that means is my life can literally be going to hell in a handbasket. All around me, there can be turmoil and conflict. There can be uh, crushing circumstances happening to me, but I'm at peace. I'm at peace. internally a lack of conflict even though around me it's all crashing down and i can be actually in a place even in the midst of trial i can be a place of blessing and abundance and so i'm at peace with god even in the midst of it and so when a again the greeting shalom is given or when we say peace to someone we're wishing for that person overall blessing and good health prosperity and victory that good things would come your way in today's vernacular we might express peace this way uh, we would say shalom and it would mean i hope your life rocks that's what we're saying right i hope your life rocks in fact go ahead and wish somebody right now beside you i hope your life rocks go ahead and do that that's what we want for one another and listen all of that is pushing us toward listen God wants that for us. God wants our life to rock. Okay. We want to be at peace with God. And when you have that, you can be and should be, okay, if you got it right with God, you can be and should be, notice this next, at peace with others. So we've worked on the vertical now, at peace with God. Now let's work on the horizontal. You said this is going to be, this is going to be a little harder, right? Give me a little harder now on the horizontal plane to be at peace with others. Again, the dual aspects of peace. When we're at peace with others, it is both the absence of conflict and the prospering of our relationships, prospering of those relationships. I want to show you four New Testament verses that are going to help us work through this. Let's put these up on the screen. And uh, we'll start with Hebrews 12, 14. That simply says, the first part of that verse says, strive for peace with everyone. I want to, I want to look at two words there. Strive and everyone. Striving implies that we're working hard at it, we're going after it, but there's no inherent promise that it's actually going to work, okay? Because we understand we're dealing with fellow sinful human beings, and sometimes when we're working hard toward peace and reconciliation, sometimes that just simply doesn't come back to us. So, so the encouragement here is work at it, strive for it, go after it. You might not get it, but that's all right. And the second important word here is, in, is everyone. It's everyone. I'm not going to be uh, selective. I like the neighbor to the right, but not the neighbor to the left. I like, um, of, of the 12 people I work with at work, I like nine of them. Okay, I like your side of the family, but not mine. You, you know what I'm saying? What's the word again? Yeah, everyone. 
Okay, strive for peace with everyone. Okay, let's look at another one. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Well, this kind of sounds like the same thing. But I, I love that so far as it depends on you, the onus is on me in any relationship. The onus is on me. The responsibility is mine in any conflict I have with another person. If I've already gotten myself at peace with God, then he's laying it on me, the people around you, whatever you can do to make that right, do it. And if you're just passively sitting by and there's conflict between you and someone else, then you're not living out Romans 12. Nor are you living out Hebrews 12. The responsibility is ours to go after this. All right, Romans 14, 19. So then. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The thing that we're looking for isn't just to make our lives easier, okay, which is often the temptation because we just focus so much on ourselves. I just want to make my life easier. No, this is for mutual upbuilding. So if I'm striving for peace, if, if, if it's possible with me, so, so far as I can do that, I'm going to work at this so that I would be blessed and so that you would be blessed, so that everybody around us who's also been affected by the conflict between us, they're going to be blessed for mutual upbuilding, that everybody would be encouraged and get to a better place, everybody living at peace with others. All right, one more verse. And then notice, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And I just love the peace dividend, okay? The blessing that comes at the end of this. If we do all of this, then um, God promises some things. And the harvest language is great. Sometimes when it comes to being at peace with others, I'm just planting seeds for that. And it's not going to happen right away. But I'm planting, I'm planting. I'm tilling the soil. I'm pulling weeds whenever those happen. I'm watering the ground. And I'm waiting for that plant to grow up. I'm waiting for a harvest to come off of it. And sometimes I have to be patient with that and, and wait for it. And it's not going to happen right away. But I'm still working the ground. I'm still doing everything I possibly can to cultivate the soil to make sure that if the day comes, we can be reconciled with one another. In all those verses, we see the direction we need to be going and the responsibility that we have to make this happen. And so you might ask at this point, uh, you might ask, uh, how can I be at peace with others? No, serious, ask it. How can I be at peace with others? I wrote it down that way. So you ask, how can I be at peace with others? Say it. How can I be at peace with others? I'm glad you asked. I have a list. <laughs> how I can be, see, look, how I can be at peace with others. See, a list. Number one, speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 15. This means, speak the truth in love means that I'm going to speak the truth because I love you, and I'm going to speak the truth in a loving way. Speaking the truth saturated with love. Sometimes we speak the truth, but it isn't exactly loving. All right? So it's both of those things. And, and then uh, pray for your enemies. And I, I put enemies in quotes here because um, more often than not, the people that we have conflict with are not actually enemies. They're actually loved ones. They're actually friends. They're actually people that we like. They're fellow followers of Christ. 
That's what's so puzzling about this whole thing. But Jesus said in Matthew 5.44, he said, pray for your enemies. And so if that's the standard, if I'm actually going to pray for the people that, I'm, that, that are actual enemies, then for sure I have to be praying about the people that I love who I'm in conflict with. And here's the crazy thing about prayer. When you get down on your knees and you start uttering another person's name, it's super hard to be angry with them. When you're speaking to a holy God who forgave you of everything, and you're mentioning that person's name to him, that has a, 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 a remarkable effect on us in melting away the anger and the animosity and the things between you that all of a sudden don't exactly matter in the face of a holy and righteous God. How can I be at peace with others? Speak the truth in love, pray for them. Uh, third, a forgive if you, as you have been forgiven. Ephesians 4.32, and uh, you have been forgiven of much. And I, I think about what uh, Pastor James McDonald often says, there are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. There are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. Yesterday, Cheryl and I celebrated our 28th anniversary. Pause for applause. Thank you. She has forgiven much. In 28 years, several years of dating, a year of being engaged, uh, Cheryl has forgiven uh, much in, in our marriage. And uh, for our marriage to have gotten to 28 years, I'm just telling you, there had to be a lot of forgiveness. For any marriage to make it that long, there has to be lots of forgiveness. And um, forgive as you have been forgiven. Uh, bear with one another in love, Ephesians 4.2. Lots of patience, lots of grace for one another. Just can't have enough of that. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. James 1.19. Parents, if you teach anything to your children, please teach them these, these three things. And model it. Oh. <laughs> model it. Actively seek reconciliation. Matthew 5.24 and the letter of Philemon. In other words, keep the door open always. Might not be possible right now to have that peace between us to, to be reconciled, but I just want to let you know the door is open and the light is on and anytime you're ready, I'm ready. I want to talk. I just want to be ready for that in every situation. And I, I, I mean, I've, I threw that up there, and, and I look at that list, and I just go, that's a lifetime worth of work, and that's, there's nothing easy about any of those. And yet that's something we must commit to if we really want to be at peace with one another. And people who are genuinely at peace with God, that very first thing we talked about, we have that established. We're actually going to want to do these things. We're going we're to want to strive to be at peace with everyone and live out and embody these principles. And I feel like, I mean, we're a week before Christmas, and I feel like that's such a good word going into Christmas, just knowing that some of us have family gatherings coming up where, you know, that's going to be like right in front of us. At peace with everyone? And it might be a good idea if you're hosting Christmas just to print this out and get that on your refrigerator. And if things were like crazy during the turkey course, you just get up and go to the kitchen and read the front of the fridge again and go back for the dessert course. And if you're going to Christmas at someone else's house, 
I don't know, print it up and put it on their fridge? I mean, I, I don't know if that's a great idea, but um, you can consider that for yourself. All right, what are we looking at here? When the light Jesus radiates peace in me, I'll be at peace with God, I'll be at peace with others. And finally, um, I'll be at peace with myself. A vertical, horizontal, internal. I want to be at peace with myself. I was uh, struck by this thing that John Newton said. I posted it on Facebook and Twitter this past week. Newton is the author of Amazing Grace. My heart is like a country, but half subdued. Mutinies and insurrections are happening, are daily happening. And I, I feel like that's my testimony. You know, you know the song we sing uh, sometimes, I love it, and when we sing it, I just personalize it so much. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And again, I just feel like that's my story. I feel like that's my battle day by day. And I know many of you identify with that as well. It's not hard to resonate with it because the battle rages inside all of us while we remain here in this world that is so tainted by sin. And we want to be at peace with, with ourselves. We want that. I said that off the top in the introduction. We want to be at peace. We long for it, but such a fight to achieve internal peace. And this might be the hardest of the three, in fact. I can understand being reconciled with God and how to make that happen. I can even understand and I can, you know, eat some things and make some things right with some people. But that internal battle, I feel, is such, the, such a, a difficult challenge for me. And I think part of that is because there's so much confusion about how do we get there. There's so much bad counsel about how to be at peace with oneself. There are lies, in fact, that are regularly told and sound right. That steer us down the wrong road. And when we start heading down the wrong road, we, we have to understand we're going down a path that's increasingly dark the further down it we go. And so we need to shed some light on all of this. The two lies that keep me from being at peace with myself. Ready for these? You say, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, because some of you probably believe these. The first one is this. I can't forgive myself. I can't forgive myself. And the second one is, I don't love myself. Do you realize those are lies? I mean, these are such common beliefs in so many counseling rooms. This is the kind of thing that friends say to each other or, or the kind of thing that you read on the internet. I wrote down a good thing here. Let me give this to you. Just because it's on the internet doesn't make it true. That's a good thing. Write that down. Just because my friend said it doesn't make it true, even if they love me. Just because a book was published, listen, the only reason why they publish books is because they think they can make money on it. Not if it's true. Truth doesn't matter. So let's take these. I can't forgive myself. I don't love myself. Let's 
filter those very common beliefs through the grid of what Jesus Christ did for us. Let's think biblically and critically about those two phrases. Sound good? Maybe I should just pray for a moment and have us all close our eyes and anybody who wants to slip out now can slip out now. But I think we need to hear this. So let's talk first of all about self-forgiveness. Let's call it that, self-forgiveness. The Bible never says that you must forgive yourself. God has to forgive you. And we, and we have to forgive each other for many things. But there's no mention, not even once, of you forgiving you. Nowhere in the Bible. The forgiveness you need is from God. The forgiveness I need is from God. And we dealt with that in the first point. How to have peace with God. And if you think you need to forgive yourself, then you have a faulty view of the effects of your sin. Now listen to this. To believe that the blood of Jesus satisfied a holy God's wrath over your sin. But then to say that the blood of Jesus Christ doesn't satisfy your inner turmoil over your sin is to make your standard higher than God's. That's troubling. It's literally to say that the blood of Jesus Christ isn't sufficient to satisfy me. That the sacrifice of Jesus Christ wasn't enough for me. You see, you see why it's a problem to say I just can't forgive myself? How offensive that is theologically? I know that that's news to some people and I hope that that informs you better and that you can walk away from here knowing something you didn't know before. Maybe it's a challenge to some of you who knew that and are just being stubborn about it. But I hope that that message is actually encouraging to some of you who are trapped by devices of your own making in saying that you can't, I just can't, I made this decision, it's so horrific and I can't forgive myself. And I want you to be free. I want you to know that the blood of Jesus Christ covers all of your sin and that, that Jesus Christ removed your sin as far as the east is from the west and you need to let him do it and not ever bring it up again. There's no longer an issue with sin. So stop bringing your sin up with yourself. Stop letting other people bring it up against you. Stop letting the devil whisper in your ear, bringing it up. And when those things happen, because they will, and anybody with any kind of a past where you've made some horrific decision and some awful thing happened in your life and you feel responsible and you still feel guilt and fear and shame over that, it happens. When that happens, you just say this, no matter what I have done, God's grace and mercy has covered it by the blood of Jesus Christ. Just keep saying that. When some dope of a friend reminds you of the bad thing that you did, 
You just tell them. No matter what I've done, the grace and mercy of God has covered it by the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, feel like you got that first one? Self-forgiveness, out. Self-love. We have to reject the very uh, premise of this. The notion of self-anything is repugnant to God. Self-love is so self-focused. It's so self-centered. It's so self-aggrandizing. It's entirely counter to the gospel, which actually instructs us to get our eyes off of self and on to Jesus Christ. We're supposed to get our eyes on the things that Christ said. And concerning love, which we dealt with in depth in the first message, he gave us the great commandment. And we're trying to lock down this notion we don't actually have to love ourselves. Remember, Jesus gave us the great commandment in Matthew 22. The great commandment is love God. The second is like it, love people. What's noticeably absent from the great commandment is love yourself. It's love God, it's love people. I would think that if it's a great commandment, it would actually be there. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And be sure to cherish your own life. But it's not there. We need to get off of this focus on ourselves. The love you need and the love that you feel you are lacking, if that's where you're at today, when you say this, I just can't love myself and therefore I can't love others, it really is something you need to understand. This is a love that is freely given to you from God and when you have his love, you don't need any other love. Again, we dealt with that in depth in the first message. I'm not going to an opposite extreme, by the way, where, oh, now I have to despise myself and I'm such a sinner and I'm so wretched and I'm the worst of the worst. And we're not going to that extreme either because we also recognize that we are in the image of God and we should live as image bearers of God. In fact, that's just as selfish, this self-deprecation, self-loathing, and in either case, when we're just focused on self, what we're really saying is that we're on the altar and we're the one to be worshipped and we're the focus of all things. We don't, we can't go down the road of turning either of these things into an idolatry of self. And so building on everything that we've heard in this message, peace with God, peace with others, peace with myself, this is how this often plays out. We want to bring it all together in this moment. You might say this, and I'm sure that you've said this or something very similar to this. I feel so conflicted inside. I feel distant from God. I feel at odds with some of the people in my life. I feel unsettled over past decisions. Could you see yourself saying some of those things? Okay. The wrong response is, I, I just have to forgive myself of those things. I know God has forgiven me, but I need to forgive myself. Or, I don't love myself, so I can't love others. And that is wrong times two. That is the wrong response. So what you need to say is, okay, I feel conflicted inside. Go over the same things. I feel distant from God. I feel at odds with people in my life. I feel unsettled over past decisions. So 
I need to reconcile myself with God. And as far as it's possible with me, I need to get right with the people around me. And then I'm going to be at peace with myself. That's what needs to be said. And what you might notice in that is, I'm not starting with myself. The essential problem we have is that we always want to start with ourselves because that's where we live. We don't start with ourselves. And that's why this is third in this list of points. I have to start with God. If you start with you, you'll always feel like you're playing catch up, running behind, missing out. But if you start with God, he redeems, he cleanses, he removes, he erases, he expunges, he clears the slate. He saves you. you, Do you like flowcharts? How many people like flowcharts? You like flowcharts? They're awesome. If you're into math or computers or whatever, or you like decision-making models, so the flowchart. The flowchart is simply this. The first box on the flowchart is, am I at peace with God? If If it's yes, you can move on to the next one. If it's no, you just keep going back. Am I at peace with God? Am I at peace with God? No. Am I at peace with God? You just keep going back. Just keep getting that fixed. You're not going on to the other things until you get that one right. If you say, yes, I'm at peace with God, then you go to the next one. Am I at peace with others? No. Go back and get that right. Go back and get that right. And once I get it right, yes, I'm at peace with others. Then the result is, don't even need to make a decision. If you understand this right, at peace with God, at peace with others, at peace with myself. That's where I arrive. You'll know who you are in Christ, and he's going to give you an amazing assurance. In fact, let's look at this, Ephesians 4, 6, and 7. Ephesians 4, 6, and 7, the apostle Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything. In other words, I, I want you to be at peace. Do not be anxious about anything. I mean, think about it. Is that even possible? I'm sure I'm anxious about at least one thing every day. Anybody, anybody else? At least one thing a day I'm anxious about that. What, like eight people? Seriously, how many people would say I'm anxious about at least one thing a day? Okay, so I mean, Paul's addressing this. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't be, let's talk about some. Don't be anxious about whether you're loved. Don't be anxious about whether you're forgiven. Because I know I am. Don't be anxious about those things. But then Paul's realistic about it. Okay? He says, but in everything, so when you are anxious, because I get you're still going to be anxious, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There's a lot in that phrase. But in essence, when you're struggling with it, and you will, and I do, take it to him. Start praying about it. God, I'm not, I'm not sending your forgiveness. I'm not sending your grace today. Would you please show me that? I'm feeling really discouraged. There's these past things, and they keep coming up in my mind. And God, would you send someone my path today who would just give me a word of encouragement or show me in your word how I, I can be reminded again of your love for me and your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy and how you saved me? I'm confused about the future, God. I'm so anxious about it. And could you help me and, 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 and give me direction from your word? Take it to him in prayer. And the peace of God, notice this continues now, and the peace of God, 
the shalom of God, which surpasses all understanding. The world simply doesn't get it because it starts with getting right with God and they're always going to get it in the wrong order. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus and that's where the battle is fought. And if you're not at peace in this way, then there's something you really don't get about what Jesus did for you. And I hope you can get to that place. Because being at peace with God and with others and with yourself means that you know that you're loved unconditionally. You know that you're forgiven completely. It means that you understand his grace, that you aren't the only one who has sinned and sinned hard. You're in a room full of sinners today. That's awesome. Isn't it? It's awesome that we're here together working these things out. It means remembering that you couldn't possibly have saved yourself and only Jesus, the Prince of Peace, could have done that. And he did. Isaiah 9, um, I'm sure you've already turned away from that. Isaiah 9, 7 finishes up with this. Of the increase of his government, his rule, his sovereignty, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Towards the end of the verse, it says that this is going to be from this time forth and forevermore. And I know it's a challenge for us. The peace of God, though, is real. It's already realized and it is being realized in our lives. We can enjoy it now, though not perfectly, while we await for the coming of our Savior and his kingdom in full. God's peace is now. It's already, but it's not yet. And in the meantime, we need to be reaching for it striving after it, being reconciled to God, reconciled to others, and reconciled to ourselves, letting the light of Jesus Christ radiate his peace in us and through us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray.